Hi, my name is Mark Rydell, and I'm a motion picture director. I've directed some pictures that you might know, like On Golden Pond, The Rose, Cinderella Liberty, The Cowboys, and I'm delighted to be on this show, on screen and beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Hello once again, I'm Brian Zemrak and this is episode 87 of On Screen and Beyond, the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as new and rumored movies, sequels, and remakes, as well as our weekly interview with someone from the movie, TV, and music industry. Last week we had Larry Minetti, who played Rick for eight years on Magnum P.I., and we had a tremendous response. And this week we have an incredible guest coming your way once again. And uh, he has directed such stars as John Wayne, Bette Midler, Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda, Catherine Hepburn, Steve McQueen, James Caan, and many, many more. He's director Mark Rydell, and his films include On Golden Pond, The Cowboys, The Rose, just to name a few. And he has some very fascinating stories to share with us. And that's coming up in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. And believe me, he has some stories that you are not going to believe. If you're a movie fan, this is what you want to hear. Because he's going to tell us some stories, and it's great. So stick around for that. Coming up in a few minutes. And right now it's time to get into Remake Madness right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. All right, as far as remake madness, Cull the Conqueror, which in 1987 starred Kevin Sorbo and Tia Carrera, is heading down the remake path once again. And this time we don't know who's going to be leading it off. Uh, Probably not Kevin Sorbo, though. Well, and the British cult 70s TV show UFO is moving on to the big screen. It's set for to uh, star Joshua Jackson, who was in Dawson's Creek, of course, and is currently on Fringe. That's about it for Remake Madness. Coming up next, upcoming movies, rumored and otherwise, right here on On Screen and Beyond. As far as upcoming movies, Michael Bay and Steven Spielberg are teaming up once again with I Am Number 4, about nine alien teens who come to Earth after an enemy species destroys their planet and they discover that their enemy is after them now on Earth. And uh, in development for 2011 is a telling of the Millie Vanilli saga of a uh, producer and two lip-syncing male models who sell millions of records and win a Grammy before the scam is revealed. And Rachel McAdams and Harrison Ford will star in Morning Glory about a hotshot TV producer who must revive a struggling morning show despite the constantly feuding high-profile anchors. And you can look for a July 2010 release on that one. That's about it for upcoming movies. Next, taking you down to Sequel City right here on On Screen and Beyond. Okay, we got some uh, 
Tintin sequel movie news for you. In fact, we have a couple of things here. A third Tintin movie is in the works from Steven Spielberg. It's looking for a 2013 release. And, of course, in 2012, it will bring us the second Tintin, Tintin movie called The Adventures of Tintin, Red Rackman's Treasure. And the first Tintin film is due in 2011, and it's called The Adventures of Tintin, The Secret of the Unicorn. And Madagascar 3 is also in the works and heading for a 2012 release exactly May 25th. If you want to know the exact date, that's what it is calling for right now anyways. And that's about it for sequels coming up next on On Screen and Beyond. What's coming away as far as TV on DVD right here on On Screen and Beyond. TV on DVD, well, Pale Force, which stars the voice talents of Jim Gaffigan, as he lets loose the power of paleness in this animated shorts of a pale superhero and his even paler sidekick, comes your way on December 1st. And the complete third season of The Donna Reed Show hits DVD this week on DVD on December 1st. And uh, Saturday Night Live, season 5, makes its way onto DVD this week. That's about it for TV on DVD. Coming up next, what's coming away as far as movies right here on On Screen and Beyond. Well, a couple of things for movies on DVD. December 8th, look for World's Greatest Dad, starring Robin Williams, Alexi Gilmore, and Spy Kids' Daryl Sabara, as it comes your way on DVD. Also, look for Hooking Up, starring Corey Feldman, Brian O'Halloran, and Bronson Pinchot on December 8th. That's about it for movies on DVD. Coming up next, well, you know, we've had a lot of people here on our show, and they've told us some fantastic stories and, and about the shows they were on, the movies they were in, people they've worked with. But this guest next, Mark Rydell, is a director who has worked with every great actor there is. He has uh, produced, uh, directed, rather, uh, such people as John Wayne, Henry Fonda, Catherine Hepburn, Bette Midler, James Caan, Steve McQueen. He, he knew James Dean. He even made a film about James Dean. He's going to talk about that. There's just so many things this guy has done, and he's such a great guy. He took a lot of time, talked with us, told us some fantastic stories, and you got to hear it. It's just just. I, I can't explain what he talks about because there's just so many things, and it's 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 fascinating. It's coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond. My guest today on On Screen and Beyond has been an actor on As the World Turns, directed TV shows such as Gunsmoke, I Spy, and The Wild Wild West. He has also directed Hollywood legends such as John Wayne, Steve McQueen, Catherine Hepburn, Henry Fonda, James Caan, Mel Gibson, Bette Midler, and Richard Gere, just to name a few. It's Mark Rydell. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, it, I, I don't even know where to start. When I was doing the research on you, it, it was like... You, you've done so many things, and it's so amazing what you've done. But I was interested to find out that you actually started as an actor. 
Actually, before I was an actor, I was a musician. I was a pianist and went to Juilliard School of Music, and um, the uh, I went to Chicago Musical College and uh, Chicago University, and then I decided I was in New York University in a in a class called what the hell is it called? It was a, a class of um, etym- etymology, how a derivation of words. And somebody um, asked that uh, the professor asked us to etymologize the term um, ornithology. Now, ornithology is a very famous Charlie Parker song. So I began to hum it, and someone behind me began to hum with me. Uh, it turned out to be Marilyn Bergman of Alan and Marilyn Bergman, the great screenwriters. I, I mean, uh, lyricists. And we became fast friends. And she said, "You should be an actor." You know, I was a musician at the time. I said, I've always entertained that idea, but never really pursued it. And she called the Maywood Playhouse and uh, got me an interview with Sandy Meiser, and that was the beginning of my new life. Hmm. Now, um, do you remember what your first acting job was? No. <laughs> what is, when I got out of the Maywood Playhouse, yes, I went to Broadway, and the lead in a play within months of my graduation from the Maywood Playhouse, a play called... Seagulls over Sorrento, which was a, a smash hit in London and which ran for nine performances on Broadway. Um, now, in those early years, I understand you were uh, good friends with Martin Landau and James Dean? Absolutely, yes. We, we hung out together and used to, in New York when you wanted to get a job. You did, it's not like in California where you wait for everybody to call you. You had to go out and stop at this agent's office and that agent's office and that producer's office. It was called Making the Rounds. And you would try to get a job. And I used to remember walking into place after being rejected so many times, I used to say, there's nothing for me, is there? (laughs) But very soon after I graduated, I was very lucky. I wound up in a a play that went to Broadway with Rod Steiger and and, uh, Leslie Nielsen. and It was their first jobs, too. And uh, it was uh, Seagulls over Sorrento. We lasted for nine performances. Now, one of your first jobs on a soap opera was the world turns. Was that daunting? Doing you know uh, the 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 ritual of every day, like you know. Actually, was actually was one of the best educations I ever had. Really, because every day I would have to learn thirty, forty pages of dialogue. And I got to the point where I could just read a page and I would remember it immediately. Of course, the minute you do it on the show, it's gone. It, 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 you, you, you make it, you regurgitate it, and that's the end of it. So it doesn't store up in your memory. Well, I did that for six years. And I really, um, it paid for everything. It paid for my apartment, my living and expenses in New York. and paid for my psychoanalysis. <laughs> it paid for everything. So I'm very grateful to... Um, the soap opera world. Later on, you made a switch from uh, acting to directing. Now, was your ultimate goal to be a director, or how did that work out? Well, I, I realized when I was a musician, I wanted to be a conductor. So when I became an actor, it seemed quite natural for me to want to lead as opposed to follow. And I naturally gravitated toward the concept of being a director. I like the idea of uh, leading a group of people toward a 
very specific objective and getting every, get a team together. I mean, here we sit in John Madden's hotel, right? Right. Guy who really knows about what it is to lead a team. Yep. And uh, an inspiration to many people. I love his personality, his energy, oh, yeah. his... Uh, and here we sit in this, the Rose Hotel, one of the nicest hotels I've been in anywhere. This is a fabulous hotel. Yeah. And it's his hotel. Yeah. So, uh, in any event, it was quite natural for me to move toward directing. And uh, very shortly after, I would say it took me about 10 years after I graduated from the Neighborhood Playhouse, during which time I was an actor and television and on Broadway and occasionally in, in uh, movies I would come to California and do a part in, in some television movie or some movie movie and then uh, the directing was quite natural for me to gravitate toward. Now sticking with the directing um, later on you went back to do some acting with Robert Altman, uh, Robert Altman. Altman and uh, how was it now all of a sudden you're you're no longer in total control. You're, was it difficult to do that? Yes, it was. <laughs> but except, you know, the people that I worked for, like Robert Altman, and you know, they were such great directors. Robert Altman is, is really, uh, I really sorely missed. He was a great director, and uh, I learned a lot from him. And um, it was fun to act again because the pressure was off. You know, I already had a kind of career as a director, so there was no, I wasn't desperate. Yeah. And the minute you're not desperate, you start to relax. And the minute you relax, you start getting good. <laughs> so I became good when I was a director. Now, but with, um, did you find yourself saying to yourself, well, he should be doing it this way, or any, you know, when somebody else was directing you? Well, you know, I was fortunate. I, I only worked with very good directors when I was acting. So we had no problems. Um, you know, I worked with Woody Allen, I worked with Robert Altman, and various other directors, but they respected my take on things because I was, a, by that time, an established director. And so it was a, it was a comradeship that, was wor that worked well. Yeah. Like I said, we mentioned about uh, James Dean and Martin Landau when you started out. Um, and James Dean, of, of course, um, the impression that everybody gets from the stories that are told that he was very unpredictable Do you, is is that a true absolutely he he was a he was a magnetic personality the minute he walked into a room everybody's attention went to him automatically i don't know what you know people try to analyze what what makes star quality it's almost an unanswerable question but he had it he just was magnetic the minute you spent time with him, you were hypnotized by him. He was a remarkable personality, very, very difficult life, troubled relationship with his father, desperate to find a, a, a father figure in his life, which he found in Kazan and various other directors. Uh, and when I made the picture about him, I made a picture about him uh, called James Dean, uh, and we the minute... I told uh, everybody that I was going to make it about a boy who was desperate for his father. Then I shaped the whole drama, because every time he made a relationship, like with Aaliyah Kazan or various other directors, he was working out his need for, to have a father figure. And uh, once you had that concept and so clearly in mind, it shaped the drama and it made it work. So it wasn't just a conventional biography of this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It had a spine, and the spine was a boy 
in desperate, hungry search for his father. Now, being such good friends with him, because you were his roommate, correct? Well, kind of hung out together. I didn't actually live with him, but but he we we spent a lot of time in each other's apartments in New York. Being such good friends, and so many years later, doing a film about him was it um, uh, more of a labor of love? Doing the, doing that, I felt obligated to tell the truth about him because I knew so much about right, him. You, you know, knew it, yeah. and and it's interesting in the picture when I finally made it, the only people I didn't know in the picture were his real parents. But I knew everybody else in the picture personally, so it was a real challenge to cast people to play people that I that knew, knew yeah. really well, and uh, I had a really good time uh, telling the truth about Jimmy. He deserved uh, more than he got, you know. After listen, he made three pictures. Can you believe it? Yeah, I, I mean, three pictures. I went to Japan recently. Uh, I was teaching in Japan. I was invited to teach some directors and actors in Japan. The most popular uh, poster you can buy in Japan is James Dean. And here it is. He died, what, in 55 or something like that? Can you believe it? Here it is 50 years ago. The most popular is James, poster is James Dean. And he's still a legend. Yeah, oh yeah. That shows you the power of... of Whatever came together in his life, whatever genetics, whatever training, whatever uh, parental influence, and, and somehow gelled in this guy. And, and of course, he was quite beautiful also. He was a very handsome guy, but he was a wonderful actor. His ability to surrender to the circumstances and for you to, made you believe everything he said. He was, that's a real talent. It's a rare thing. I could only name... Half a dozen actors, perhaps, that have that kind of gift. And it's amazing, because every time you see a, a poster or something that's uh, signifying Hollywood, uh, the, the old Hollywood, and James Dean is always one of them with Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart or something that like amazing? that. Isn't yep. And a guy made three, three pictures. pictures. Yeah, that shows you the power of his personality. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, he was uh, unlike anybody I've ever met. Just, and he, and he never pushed himself either. It just happened. Yeah. You came into a room and everybody's attention went to him automatically. It just was a, it's a, a freak of nature in an odd way. Now, in that film, uh, the, the James Dean story that you did, um, you actually played a part in that. Yeah. Uh, now, was that difficult, uh, acting, you know, directing yourself? Well, what I had to do was bring in uh, people I trust to watch me when I was working as an actor. And after a take, um, I would look to them and they would tell me whether it was all right or not. It, you, can't, you can't watch yourself when you're acting. That would, that's a, that's a, that would be a cancer for an actor. You have to surrender in such a way to the material that you forget what's going on. You're just involved. And I needed that third eye, so I would bring in somebody to help me. It's, I don't. There are some actors, people like Orson Welles, Woody Allen, a number of people who direct and star in their own films. I can't imagine doing it because it's such a different talent. You know, the, the acting talent has to do with surrendering and forgetting everything but what's going on. 
The director is always judging and making evaluations. Is this moment good? Is this moment bad? Is, do we want to change it? Do we want to fix it? Do I want to make something different? The actor never does that. The actor just has to surrender and be involved. And, and A really good actor, at the end of a take, won't know what happened. He'll say to you, was it all right, you know? Yeah. You want that, you want that. You want an actor who does that, because if an actor is doing it right, he does not know what happened. As you probably know, you get lost in it, and you're just doing it. And then when someone says, cut, it's like, who interrupted my life, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, in that movie, James Dean, where you were acting and directing, you played uh, the Jack, Jack Warner. Warner. Now, um, had... Did you know him, actually? Well, I'll tell you why I chose myself to play that part. I came to Hollywood in the 50s to make a movie called Crime in the Streets, which I had done on television with John Cassavetes, and we were brought to California to make the movie version of it. And uh, I, I was in the movie with James Whitmore and John Cassavetes, and Sal Mineo made his first debut in that movie. And suddenly I get a call from Jack Warner's office. He wants to see me. He's seen the dailies and was impressed with me and wanted to meet me. And I, being a kind of a 19-year-old, arrogant New York kid, went reluctantly to meet Jack Warner, who I considered like some corrupt Hollywood bullshitter. You know? And I came into the office, which was, of course, elaborate. And he complimented me at length, which disarmed me. And he said he wanted to make a, a three-picture deal with me. And with my stupid arrogance, I said, well, I have to have script approval. And he turned to me and said, get the hell out of my office. <laughs> Literally. So I saw the, the guy who he really was. You know, I knew that's why I wanted to play him. Yeah. Because he would rather <laughs> say something funny than make a good movie. You'd rather be a, a bad comic than a good uh, movie maker. He was an interesting guy, though. So I enjoyed playing him. He was very tough. Very tough. I particularly enjoyed a There's a scene in, that I had with, uh, with James Franco in an automobile in the back of a limousine where I, where I made it quite clear how tough he was and didn't allow uh, the James Franco, who was playing Jimmy Dean, to give me any lip. Yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs>Last night, um, I was listening to you talk, and, uh -huh. and um, it was it was just amazing to hear oh. the, you know the, all the people you were talking about and what you've done and everything. But um, one thing that struck me was when you were saying that when you were on the set of On Golden Pond, that Catherine Hepburn was always telling stories about all these icons that she had worked with in uh, Spencer Tracy and everything. And you said that you were you know amazed and in awe of, of the, the people she was talking about. And as you said that. Um, all I could think of is you've become the same thing. The, you've, you have so many stories of people. It's, it's amazing to hear them. And it's, it's, uh, you know, people keep asking me to write a book. You should. I, mean, uh, I have had a, a, a remarkably lucky career working with major people. You know, and they've had luck working for you. That's well, thank <laughs> you. That's nice of you to say that. But I, mean, I really was, uh, I really have been extremely lucky in my life working with giants you know, oh, yes. and enjoying it, loving it and getting their respect and 
and guiding them. It, it's very it's a very paternal role, you know, to be a director, as you well know. You 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 have to kind of you have to create an environment where people can flourish. That's the first thing you should do. Make a make a comfortable place where people can expose themselves without with impunity and not feel like perhaps the, they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. You have to encourage them and, and it's a very paternal role and I'm I'm comfortable in that role. I have a number of children, a number of grandchildren and I'm and I feel very comfortable in the in the paternal role. You had an opportunity to work with John Wayne in the Cowboys. Yeah. Um, had you known John Wayne before that picture? No, as a matter of fact, I didn't want him. Oh, really? I, I went to, uh, I sold the, the, a book that I, it was an unpublished novel, The Cowboys. I sold it to Warner Brothers. And, uh, you know, I got it. I knew it was good, terrific, going to be a terrific movie. I just knew that the situation was so perfect. You know, a, a, a rancher loses all his cow hands to a gold rush and has to hire a bunch of kids to help him on a cattle drive of 1,500 cattle moving all the way from wherever it was to Belfouche. It was a long, it was a perfect setup for a movie. So I, I, um, I sold it to Warner Brothers, and um, they said that we'd like to have John Wayne. I said, I want George C. Scott. And they had a contract with John Wayne, which they wanted to fulfill. And they said, well, let's go meet him. I really didn't want to because, uh, I mean, we were at opposite ends of the political spectrum. You know, he was a very right-wing, conservative uh, guy who was in many ways responsible for the blacklist of the 50s in Hollywood. He was very rabid, anti-communist, and uh, I was a liberal. So I didn't. I, so I, one of the first things I said to him, by the way, once we got to work together, was that let's not talk anything but acting. Let's not talk politics. So we got on a plane, the Warner Brothers plane. I thought, oh, isn't that great? We're flying down to Mexico where he's shooting a picture in Durango to meet with him. And the Warner Brothers plane, little did I know, they charged it to my picture, you know. <laughs> right. So I flew down to, to um, Durango, Mexico. And I uh, tremulously went into this hotel suite, and there was the Duke, all six foot five of him, you know. He reached out his hand, which was perhaps three times the size of mine, and my hand disappeared in his, and he had read the, the unpublished novel which they had sent him. And he said to me, I'd sure like to be in this picture, sir. And I was, you know, I was 30 or something like that. And he was, I'd be, I, I really would appreciate if you'd give me a chance to play this part, he said to me. I was stunned. And of course, I was seduced immediately and found him to be one of the most remarkable uh, men. Uh, just ultimate professional. First guy there in the morning, last guy to leave, hardworking, open for everything willing and uh, tough and it was a great education for me because he was here's a guy with whom I politically disagreed with about everything but I learned to really like him I know many people who uh, with whom I do agree who I don't like <laughs> but he was great he was a great great man how did you come about to get Bette Midler into the roles is, well, is that a any took, story behind that there is a story they wanted um, when, I, when they asked me to do The Rose, 
which was it was originally a, um, a movie based it was called the Janis Joplin story and I said Jesus I don't know this I don't know anybody who can be Janis Joplin I mean that's really so such a rare quality she had I don't know who could cast it they wanted me to put in Jessica Lang various actresses and dub in the voice you know and get someone singing off stage and all I said I think you have the wrong director it didn't seem realistic enough for me, so I withdrew. And they went through one or two, three directors uh, in the interim. And at least ten years later, they came back to me, and because I had said the only person who could play it is Beth Midler, and they said, "Well, we we don't know her. You know, she was singing in the bathhouses in New York." How how did you hear about her? Well, I saw her. Oh, you had seen her. Uh, okay. I knew she was a miracle, which I think she is. She, oh. Uh, so much talent in this little frame and this ability to to turn herself inside out to to expose her heart and is every every emotion she's not unafraid you know it's amazing I, I'm really impressed with her I think she's one of the finest people I've ever had a chance to work with and I've worked with a lot of very good actors that's for sure but she was special and uh, we we hit it off very quickly when we talked about the picture, she was very scared. She had never acted before. And here was a role that was very demanding with very emo emotional uh, scenes where she had to really practically be emotionally naked. And uh, But she was, she was up to the task. I have the greatest admiration for her. I think she's one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. Now you worked with her again in For the Boys, which yes, I, it, I thought was a great film, but I don't, I don't think that got the credit that it really deserved. The, the, I'm, well, I'm glad you said it because I think the same thing. Yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> I love that picture. Yeah. It was, um, you know, a picture that was difficult because it took, over, it took place over thirty or forty years. And you, it started in, in World War II, I believe, or, or was it Vietnam? I don't remember. And it spanned a long right. time, and then yeah. there was makeup and aging and all the difficult things that, that a company, an actor who has to play uh, a 50-year difference in their age. Uh, but I loved it. I loved the movie, and I loved her in it. And, you know, I had all, a lot of my friends in it. Jack Sheldon, who led the band in it, was a great jazz player, a great jazz trumpet player. And, I, so I had a real good time making that picture as well. Now, when when you talk about the jazz band and everything, did you ever get the urge to get out there and play the piano? I did, indeed. I, they had to keep. They had to drag me away. <laughs> did you play in the movie? No, I no, never, you no. I I I, I, was, I was not that arrogant because I knew there were better players than me. So that you know, I had really great players, Dave Bruce and great piano players. But I, I used to play in rehearsals and all that, really? so it was fun. Yeah. Must, have been a, must have been a fun set. Oh, well, listen, I think that that's the... It's, you know, you mentioned a fun set. I think that's probably the primary obligation of a director, is to create an atmosphere in which everybody can do their best and want to do their best and, and want to show you their best, and where you encourage them. It's like being a good father, a good daddy. You, you, you encourage people to show you the best that they have. And once they feel the permission from you to, to that they can show you what, what they really want to show you, you get miraculous performances. On, on Golden Pond, and that's such a classic. Um, Thank you. Was it, um, 
difficult having, I mean, Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda, too, all those personalities on the set at the same time? Well, it's an interesting question. They all had, you know, they're such monstrous talents. All three of them are so brilliant that all it was necessary for me to do was to create an atmosphere in which they could do their best and where they knew that I wanted them to do their best. So it wasn't difficult. The only uh, difficult time came when, during rehearsal, I think I mentioned this last night when I was talking, Jane, uh, 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 Catherine kept talking, excuse me, I'm, I'm thinking about Jane Bond at the same time, yeah. I'm thinking about Catherine. Catherine kept talking about Spencer Tracy, telling stories about Spencer Tracy, and I began to sense that Henry Fonda was feeling left out. So I uh, whispered to her, maybe you better start, stop talking about Spencer, start talking about Henry. And as I said last night, she brought in, the next day she brought in Spencer's hat and gave it to Henry. And it cemented their relationship immediately. It's funny, I had a little gesture like that. Yeah changed their relationship enormously. The minute he, she gave him Spencer's hat, she was saying, in essence, you are my Spencer. Yeah. Huh. And he felt so good about that that it, their relationship blossomed. And now I was amazed that you had said, when last night you were talking and you said that uh, they actually did the water scenes when they were in the water? Uh, they did everything. In the, they refused to let any stunt men or stunt women or or doubles do anything. Any time they jumped in the water, any time that he was in the water when the boat crashed or when she dove in from the dove in from the head of that boat, I, I was stunned that she did that. You know, I thought she was going to jump in the water and swim to. She dove. I was. She was an amazing person. You know, she's. She, uh, as I mentioned again last night, she broke her shoulder serving tennis three weeks before the picture started, and I thought the picture was going to go down. I went to visit her in the hospital where she was all pinned up and she said, don't be ridiculous, I'll be there. Wow. And she what was. She was the ultimate trooper. Jeez, that's amazing. Yeah, terrific woman. I've had some luck working with good people like that. That film, it, it brought out so much emotion. It was such an emotional film. It's not like nowadays where everything is car crashes and everything. The story was, there was a story. That's, that's the main thing. It's gone. A lot of that is gone. The kids, um, young directors, are more interested in dazzling the audience than engaging them emotionally. So they do a lot of explosions and special effects and uh, and a lot of quick cutting and all that. So the whole idea is to keep everybody on the edge of their seat with a kind of a dazzling display of technique. I prefer... Uh, dealing with what happens between people. I think that's the ultimate drama, is what happens when one person wants one thing and another person wants the opposite, and how they deal with that. That, that somehow is truer to me than all the special effects and explosions you can have. Yeah, that's, I mean, to me, that's more dazzling if you can come across correctly like that. That's... It's tougher, oh, sure because you have no trickery to get, you have to just have the truth. Right. And, I, I guess that's um, the, the pursuit of truth is the ultimate spine of being a director. Tell the truth about what's going on. Tell the truth. 
If you tell the truth with unswerving dedication, you'll have something valuable. You mentioned earlier about uh, on the Cowboys, you had the, the scenery and everything. Do you prefer being in a, directing a movie, or being in a movie, either one, um, where you are confined to a studio set, or like with the Cowboys where you were, you were out in the real world? Well, I've done both, you know. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you have a little more control on a studio set. You can light things exactly the way you want them. You could put a slash of light across somebody's face and make something mysterious if you want. Whereas if you're out and doing a picture like the Cowboys, where I had to place 1,500 head of cattle and cowboys and kids, and, you know, it was a, a big yeah. deal. The cattle don't pay attention to what you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So that was a, a different kind of challenge. But that's what's exciting about being uh, in the movies or as a movie director is that you're constantly challenged by each, each piece of material that makes its own demand on you. And you have to, the material is the, the essence of it. You have to look at the material and say, what is that material talking to me about? What is it trying to say? And then try to tell the truth about that. Now, um, we'll finish up. Uh, okay, um, there's just a few things I wanted to... Uh, you may not be able to answer these. Uh, it's it's, it's sort of a bad thing to ask you, I think, okay, sometimes. But uh, with everything you've directed, TV, um, movies, and, and everything plays, else, yeah, plays, um, as far as a TV show that you've directed, what was your favorite TV show to direct? I guess I really liked uh, James Dean. That, that was a two-hour movie of the week. Yeah. Uh, I really liked that because, as I said to you before, I knew everybody in the picture personally. I knew Kazan. I knew all the actors in it. Uh, Marty Landau, of course, was, was in it, uh, or someone playing him as a young guy. I knew everybody in the picture. I knew all the agents in the picture. I knew all the directors in the picture. So I felt a real obligation to uh, bring my understanding of them to the to the picture. It was very nutritious. Now, as far as movies, other than that TV movie, what was your favorite, personally? Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to say. That, you know, it's like asking a parent what his favorite child is. That's why I said it's a difficult one. You may not be able to answer that. Well, I can tell you, I, I've, had, I've had the privilege of working on a lot of movies, I think 13 or so, I'm not really sure, something like that. And I've never had a bad experience in making a movie. I'm so comfortable and so at home working with people and guiding them and leading them. It's, it's the most exciting opportunity in the profession. It's such a wonderful thing to go into the arts. And, a, and I encourage those who, who have a need to express themselves that way to pursue it. It's a tough role, but it's worth it. It's worth it to be in, to be a whether I'm, whether you're a musician or a dancer or an actor or, or a director. It doesn't make any difference. Or you're a writer. The, the arts are probably the, the the most remarkable development of of mankind and in culture. It's the highest evolution that man has reached. Is the arts. And uh, I encourage people to pursue that. Now, and this is the real tricky one. Okay. Uh, you know, we did the TV and the movies. Is there any actor who is your favorite one to to direct? 
It's again the same kind of yeah, question. You know, it's really a tough one because I, I enjoy uh, so much helping people to arrive at what they're after. You know, it's that's really what the role is. You, you got to sense what they're after, and you got to help them to get there. And it's just a very comfortable role for me. I don't know why, but thank God I found it. It's it's given me a career. It's given me a life. And uh, uh, I feel like I haven't wasted my life by doing this kind of work. Was there ever any of the actors who you were just so awe, in awe of when you first met them? Brando was uh, that kind of an actor, you Brando. know. Brando was a genius actor, uh, who, by the way, didn't respect the profession. He thought it was child's play. But uh, he was his ability to surrender to a situation and to the circumstances of a situation in a play or a movie was so powerful, so unbelievable. You watched him and you knew right away that he was telling the truth in every moment of his behavior. So I admired him a lot. I really did. Mark, I, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I'm so honored that you would take the time to oh, talk to us. it's my pleasure talking to you. It's good to talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> And, of course, I want to thank Mark Rydell so much for taking the time to sit down, talk with us. He, he had other things to do, other places to be, uh, but he actually sat down and took that much time to talk to us. Uh, he's just a fascinating guy. Um, I was just so mesmerized with the stories he was telling while we were doing the interview that um, I, I forgot to, when I wanted to ask a question, to move the mic over to <laughs> so you could hear me. But it doesn't matter. The whole thing is to hear what he has to say. But uh, it would have been nice if you could have heard my question <laughs> a little bit, too. Um, but he was just so fascinating. It was just uh, it was it was mesmerizing just hearing him talk. He's a great guy. Uh, if you ever get a chance to meet him, he's just just very nice. And uh, let's see here. What else we got to tell you about here? Oh, if you have suggestions for guests, you can send it to us at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com and tell us who you would like us to have an interview with, and we'll try. Um, that's all I can say. We'll, we, we are working on several uh, that uh, people have sent in just recently. And uh, in the past, we've tried uh, some people. We've gotten some people to do interviews. Uh, we've talked with others, and they they you know unfortunately they can't do it um but uh we are trying constantly so if you have a suggestion send it to us you never know we may be able to get that person on for you and uh we will see what we can do and let's see uh, next week's guest uh we have another great interview coming away and the guest will be from one of television's most beloved tv shows and it's going to be here next week, right here on On Screen and Beyond, episode 88. Till then, this is Brian saying, take care. Mm -hmm.